0: Score football analyst.
2: David Montgomery struggled with early in his career. There's a lot of dancing in the backfield. He's gotten more and more effective throughout his time with the Bears at getting downhill.
0: Former NFL defensive lineman and Iowa Hawkeye. And
2: as long as that ends up being the case. Hey, Bishop, I'm still on the radio. No, it's all
3: right. can hang. Paw Patrol. I need another Paw Patrol. Okay, I'm going to come turn (laughs) it on (laughs) in just a couple (laughs) of moments, all right? Big Ann Heron. Mr. Hedden, I want to compliment you. You're doing a fine job.
0: With Bernstein and Holmes
3: on the score. Anthony Heron's on Twitter at Big Ant Heron, our football analyst. One of our many football analysts joins us on the score hotline presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book and on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Chicago 670, the score. That was a hell of a weekend of football. Some fans think that that is the best weekend of football with all of the high-level play going on. What were your takeaways?
2: It, it's certainly up there, man. I mean, the, the results of the, the competition itself end up painting the way we view a weekend like that. But you know, when you have the obviously the quarterback storylines were varied, the, the weather elements, the potential for how the results of the games could maybe affect some historic things with neutral site games being factored in and all the, the bravado and the swag on display in, in various ways. It was a thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining weekend.
4: What I want to know, and there's a couple questions I want to run past one of the smartest football people that I
3: know. Let's, and then what about with Anthony? Wow. Um, <laughs> Just teed it up. Bro. I, say, I know, right? Matt Bowen's Thursday.
4: <laughs> wow. Hawkeye on Hawkeye Go crime. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, I want to know, like, we, it, we always talk about offense, how this is an offensive league and everything mm-hmm. is moving in the direction. Everything is set up for the offenses to succeed. But I'm looking around at the teams that are left here, and I'm seeing some really good defenses. So in this era of offensive football, how do you build a dominant, successful defense looking at the the, the teams that are still left in the playoffs? Still, most often,
2: it's going to start up front. And that's obviously speaking from my, my defensive line bias, partially, but... When, when you really get down to it, I mean, part of the reason that, that Dallas was still even in the game against that creative San Francisco offense with his varied to play caller as we've seen in the sport is because their, their defensive line will give you fits. And even when they're not winning matchups, but what you see on film throughout the week as an offensive coach, when you're watching film of what they can do up front and the variety of ways that they can attack you up front – then it, it gives you fits. It gives you nightmares. It, it makes you even in game recall like that nightmarish rush that you saw from one of the great defenders from the opposing team. That great blitz where the front seven had multiple guys penetrating into the backfield. That ends up affecting the way that you implement your game plan in game. Because as a play caller, as a coach, and it's one of the things that can be frustrating at times, a la Matt Nagy. But it's one of the things that that can make coaches. Be, be able to go to certain matchups in game that they game plan beforehand, but it also can make you really skittish, even as you're seeing something play out before your eyes, Like you wonder, okay, could George Kittle have had 20 receptions in the game if they really wanted him to? Maybe he could have. But how frequently do you want to expose expose Brock Purdy to that potential, you know, to, to try and feature a matchup that you know you've got a decided advantage where you do have a young quarterback who's throwing on time in rhythm and you know with a relative level of accuracy within certain confines between the hash marks. But then you also have one of the baddest dudes in the NFL at tight end who's healthy and playing at a high level. It was the type of game where maybe you could have had you know a, a Travis Kelsey type of game statistically from, Kitt- from Kittle, but you only want to expose your your quarterback, your offensive line, your your dominant offensive line to that so frequently in that matchup. So it does end up starting up front even even in the modern you know sort of NFL where you do have the mobility of a quarterback the more you can have eyes on the backfield where having man coverage on the back end and if it's a man you know a, a man look on the outside with with safeties with zone eyes with linebackers who can flow fast with multiple players who can play at the second and the front level that's where not only the athleticism but the position you can put defenders in to be able to react because the second reaction defensively is so huge for a guy like Patrick Mahomes where, you know, if his if his ankle it ends up being, you know, really gimpy going into the next game and he's not able to move in the way that he does, he's not one of these guys who you're worried about running a 30 or 40-yard touchdown, but his ability to extend the play, to put defenses in a second reaction mode is huge. And so the Giants defense, you know, you may be in a position where you can just Blitz the opposing backfield over and over again. And that can work well when you're getting home. But then when you're not, you're susceptible to the big play. You're susceptible to a team being able to run it and throw it at a high level. So schematically, you do end up putting yourself on an island really frequently. Whereas if you can be the Philadelphia Eagles, if you can be the San Francisco 49ers and dominate with your front, then that's really the desired way. It's why you know some of the frustrating periods of the the season from the Bears here were Allen Williams and Matt Eberflus. Wondering why don't they blitz more? Well, when they were okay in the secondary, they did throw a little bit more blitz at you, but at their core, they want to have D lines that dominate the game, not necessarily defensive schemes that end up imposing themselves on opponents because that's where you have the advantage. You want the guy. At the, at the signal caller as a quarterback who can take a game over, and you want a defensive front that can make that opposing QB as uncomfortable as possible. Those are the main
3: priorities in football and really have been for generations. What fascinated me about the Cincinnati-Buffalo game was the psychological flow of that <laughs> game, in that here, you, Buffalo is at home, and it's snowing, and they've got the the inspirational presence there yeah. and Joe Burrow man just drives him down and scores and they get it back and they he drives him down and scores again and that boom boom two just gut shots and then i watched Josh Allen play nervous Mm-hmm. He looked to me like and even though he's the he's the rough, tough you know, gun slinging customer there, but here's Burroughs whose heart rate never goes up. Nothing's too big for him. And it did look a little bit, and I, and I the, you can't quantify some of this stuff, but I, did you see what I saw? Where it seemed like Allen was pressing, and, and and they knew it. And that front seven of Cincinnati, it might not be the big names of, of of everybody else, and they and I know they feed off that, but they're they're tough.
2: It's when when you look at the the way that each quarterback, there you know, Burrow versus Allen. Josh Allen is your your quintessential big game hunter, and and when things break down around him, he's as physically gifted as anyone we've seen in the position to be able to hunt that big play, whether it is with his legs, with his arm, quite frequently with both. But he's never really been a guy to consistently play with control, with comfort. And you think about the career arc of Joe Burrow. Where he was, you know, he, he was the backup's backup in Columbus at Ohio State. And then he was just some mediocre dude surrounded by all this talent his initial season at LSU. And then it was finally that last year where everything really came together for Joe Burrow. And so the, the progression of his football arc, I think, really factors into what we see at this point. Because he has had to be patient at so many stops along the way to becoming what became the number one overall pick in the draft because it was undeniable the physical tools that he does bring to the table, the, the arm talent that's there, not just pure arm strength, which he's got plenty of it, but the arm talent to fit the ball into tight windows, to, to turn the nose of the football over in a rapid manner, to throw with anticipation, to manipulate defenses with his eyes. Like you go back to the national championship game where it was Joe Burrow and Trevor Lawrence on the field at the same time, and Trevor Lawrence I think was still a sophomore at that point. Multiple years younger than Joe, Joe Burrow playing in that game, but it showed or Lawrence, all the physical talent in the world, but between the two, Burrow was under more duress from that Clemson defensive front. But you saw the the control, the the confidence, even as he's taking hits, even as he's, you know, getting hobbled in the game at different points, starting to limp around, but he never, he was never flapped. But Whatever the origin of the term unflappable is, he was not flat <laughs> in that game. And he, at this point in his NFL life, has yet to be flapped by any opponent in any surrounding environment. And that's the thing that's most difficult to scout. It's most difficult to quantify, but it is the key for any quarterback, whether you're taking number one or whether you are Mr. Irrelevant, can you be flapped? How much, if you have been flapped, do you have it within you to recover in those moments? And we got to remember, Joe Burrow, if, if there's not a fumble from the backup quarterback from Baltimore, Joe Burrow might not have even been on the field the other day. Like, you know, Baltimore was getting ready to win that game. So it's not like Cincinnati is this juggernaut of a team, but they do have a quarterback who just tends to find a way game in, game out, and especially what we've seen in, in still a very young career from a postseason perspective. Put him on the road in a hostile environment, and he just shows
4: up ready and does not mind telling you about it. Okay, Big Ant, in basketball, the concept of having all of these different guys and playing positionless basketball is outstanding. It's what you want. Can my five guys all switch? Are my five guys all matchup problems? Now, I'm not talking about what we saw at the end of the game yesterday Mm. where Zeke's playing center. That's a bad idea when we talk to
2: positionless football. I guess Zeke wasn't too pleased about it either. Especially when he (laughs) he saw
4: what ended up happening to him. He thought nobody was going to touch him, and then they really touched him. Uh, But when I watched the 49ers, that's the thing that I'm struck by, that they've got so many different guys that can line up in so many different places. What is that like for a defensive coordinator or defensive players to know that you can see McCaffrey line up as an X, Kittle lined up at tailback, Debo lined up everywhere, Juszczyk lined up as an X, sometimes in the backfield. They can do all of this stuff. So what does that do to a defense?
2: What's critical to appreciate about it, too, Lawrence, is is that offensively, all those guys they need to know a lot. You know, like Debo Samuel needs to know the running back position. Debo Samuel needs to know slot. Debo Samuel needs to know X. We're accustomed to thinking of the the quarterback knowing what everybody's doing, and he's kind of the main guy. And the center has a lot of responsibilities, pre-snap and post-snap, for, for getting the O-line and the right protection and adjusting run schemes and everything. We don't really think of the, the skill positions as being high-level thinkers because frequently in offensive systems, they don't have to. But, you know, like Christian McCaffrey, he went to Stanford. He's an uber-smart guy. He's been there for, what, a little over a month, basically. He's got a fairly intricate offensive system. down, and, and there's been elements of this, you know, back to his collegiate days as well. And he's, he's always been a guy who can pick it up. And also, the scheme that Kyle Shanahan runs, he has some familiarity with it anyway. But that being said, between McCaffrey, and Samuel, Yuzek, you name it, so many guys, you know, Ayuk, who, who can line up in a variety of spots they got to know what the hell they're doing because the defense, the opposing defense, they are constantly trying to pick up on keys. It's one of the biggest differences from the collegiate level to the professional level. Not only the individual athlete, but the scouting, the game planning associated with your opponent, and especially once you get to the postseason where you've got 17 games of regular season film, from every tendency, and it's a part of why. You know, Matt Nagy's second season, I was telling you guys, that you know what, folks around the league are telling me, they they got Matt Nagy down, man, they got him down cold. They know exactly what he's doing in all these different scenarios, personnel groupings he's going to. He gets to certain areas of the field, what plays he's about to run, and it's a part of what made the Bears easier to stop in the second season than the first year, which the first year was maybe a little bit overrated anyway. But for the opposing defense, that's where I was mentioning eyes earlier. The eye discipline that you can play with especially at the first two levels but even on the back end it ends up mattering because you can't necessarily stop them when the way the offense if you can't tell when they break the huddle that oh McCaffrey is lined up in the slot here's what that means when you don't know that for sure or Debo's lined up in the backfield here's exactly what they run when that's the case no I can't say that because they may motion him out of the backfield and put him out at X. They may motion McCaffrey from the slot back into the backfield. They may line him up as a wing at the end of the line of scrimmage and run a completely different play than we've seen before because they are capable of executing all those things at a high level. And your goal as a defender in knowing that you can't defend every blade of grass on the field, what can you do to try and put the offense in in the most difficult circumstance that you can? How do you make them play left-handed, you know, to use that terminology? And the 49ers can balance their scheme, their execution. And Kyle Shanahan does as effective of job as any play caller in the league of keeping his play calling balanced. And so that does add to the way that the defenders are just unaccustomed to being able to get a bead pre-snap on what's about to happen, and then you add in McCaffrey's ability to run after the catch, Debo's ability to run after the catch, and Kittle's ability to run after the catch. And so I I love that you're using that positionless term, Loho, because that's exactly what it is, and it's most effective because not only when the athletes get the ball in their hands are they super effective, but then also they're a step ahead because the opposing defense is hesitant in that regard, and you have to do everything in your power. I was talking about this um, Pro Football Weekly last week everything in your power to bring population to the football, to swarm in a way that we were talking about during the season where defenders were just forcing Justin Fields to cut it back in. They would just run sideways and not even try to tackle him, but just make him cut the football back so you give the pursuit an opportunity to get there, but you're always playing a step behind against San Francisco because schematically, they're diverse, and then you have these combustible playmakers with the football in their hands that can just make you look silly.
3: 60 seconds or less, the effect of what is clearly a relatively serious injury on Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs' chances.
2: It it means a lot, but it doesn't mean everything. You know, he's going to have a week to practice throwing you know, left-handed and behind his back on one foot. And he, as, a, as an athlete, as a competitor, has just he, – he's been stellar in, in every regard that he's been tasked with a quarterback. So, you know, Kansas City's going to be uncomfortable. But by the time they get to game day, he, he's going to have some, some medical assistance, I would imagine, within that ankle. Some kind of injections going to be going on, probably in the ankle and in the buttocks. And so by the time you get to game day, yeah, it's going to be numb and he's not going to move as well. But, you know, if he throws it with eight fingers instead of ten or he throws it with his left hand or underhanded or whatever, he's going to be able to get the football there.
3: Anthony, thank you. All right, fellas. That's Anthony Heron. we got more football stuff coming up later. Dan Wieterer is going to join us at one with his thoughts. I know it's not his regular time. We just moved him to, uh, out an hour, so it, it's all good. When we come back, I think we should hear from a, a long-form piece that you did on your House of L podcast with the late Lynn Bramer.
4: Yeah, I, I – wanted to bring all of it back quite honestly because it's great but there's a there's a chunk of it that I think is worth and you can kind of get like the mosaic of Len because of some of the, the the questions that I asked but we ended up inside of this like talking about death and when I went back over it you know it was hard to like listen to because we were talking about his father's death and then his death but there's some there's some joy in there too and there's some stuff that you can learn So we will share it with you as we celebrate our friend Lynn Bramer. It's the Bernstein Home Show here on the Score.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to twenty percent versus AT and T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Bernstein and Holmes. Middays 10 to 2. On Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station.
4: Like the folks over at our sister station, WXRT, we are celebrating our friend Lynn Bramer who passed away yesterday. And obviously, you when someone passes, you start thinking about like the interactions that you have with them. I was going through... Some text messages yesterday, some DMs, some emails of Len being like, Hey, we're having sandwiches. Uh, You want one of the sandwiches? Like just fun stuff like that. And Len and I had a fantastic, like hour long conversation. He was nice enough when House of L was just starting to be this episode 12. Um, Just starting out, he wanted to be on the pod. And it was great because it gave me a chance to ask him questions that I've been dying to ask him. There's all sorts of stuff in here, and we do get into life. But where it starts is me talking with him about sound. And specifically, whether there's a difference between a a an album on wax and a CD and a cassette and an audio file, an MP3. Here's what he told me.
5: You have to remember when uh, the the, the great CD revolution took over and vinyl records were uh, re-recorded or remastered or stuck on CDs that they didn't really think through the transition from an audiophile standpoint. And a lot of those first CDs of classic albums are abominations of audio quality. Which is why years later, so many labels went and said, "Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa! This is this is the remastered CD. This is, (laughs) uh, you know, what we fooled you. We fooled you once, but we're going to fool you again and give you the remastered version of the CD you already bought to replace the vinyl you got." Now, there is no question in any audiophile's mind that the sound of analog recording is uh, richer. Uh, deeper somehow. Uh, and if you want to feel emotional about it, there's definitely something more soulful about a vinyl recording. But a well-mastered CD is, is really, really close. The interesting thing to me is that when I first listened to music, it was on top 40 radio in the sixties. On car speakers or on a transistor radio. Mm-hmm. So when you were listening to, you know, in the mid 60s, it might have been uh, a New Door single or it was a Motown single. And the quality that you were hearing that was turning you into a lover of this music was, by most standards, uh, antediluvian. It was ridiculously simple. In fact, famously, I haven't checked this on the Internet in the last two years, and I really should because when I work from memory, that's dangerous. But I always heard that uh, Motown producers would set up car speakers in the studio because they wanted to hear what their recording sounded like in the car or on transistor radio. They didn't want to hear it on studio monitors. That was irrelevant to making something that kids would listen to and buy. How does it sound coming out of the car radio. So you had that kind of really basic, almost tinny sound of early rock and roll, early rhythm and blues, and then there was this progression to uh, full albums listened to on the kinds of uh, stereo systems where you'd flick the on switch and it would take... You know, 60, 90 seconds for to, to power up, to just warm up enough, right? Uh, and then you had, you know, the speakers that would fill up the window in your dorm if you wanted to play music to people on the quad that didn't want to hear your music. And it just got bigger, and audio quality was, was a priority. And then in the intervening decades, it seems as though we've slipped all the way back to now where most people have their music on their phones, uh, have MP3s, uh, Best Buy stop selling CDs, the cars you buy today don't have CD players. Uh, so you're kind of pushed into this retrogression of audio quality where you've gone all the way full circle back to when old guys like me first listened to music uh, in the car uh, on less than excellent Sound quality. How much vinyl do you spend in a morning? Uh, I spend uh, very little vinyl. We do have some vinyl in there. There are some record albums that we just were too lazy to replace or have remained out of print. Or in some cases, although this isn't as relevant, uh, you know, there are vinyl versions of classic albums that were remastered for CD that sound totally different. For example, in, in the 80s, the drum sound for rock music and for pop music, the, the drum sound just changed entirely, and it became really, really forward. So if you A and b say ZZ Top, It's Only Love from uh, one of their albums, and you played the intro drums, on vinyl, and then you played it on CD. It's a difference between uh, two. So the original vinyl copy is the only copy you can listen to that sounds like what you bought it for in the first place before it was remastered. But I'm sorry, I got a little off track. Most of what we play is on a database. That contains the history of, say, 24,000 songs that we've played over the years. You know, and they're not always in the current library, uh, but over the years, if you did a search for our library in a database, boom, 24,000 something shows up. So it's coming out of a hard drive, it's coming out of a computer, and you say, what about the sound quality for that? Radio stations do processing mm-hmm. to juice up the way you and I sound and the way music sounds in various ways, depending on the format, depending on, you know, in the olden days, they used to speed up 45s to like 48 RPMs because they wanted to sound snappier. No, we need this song to sound faster. Well, these days there there's all kind of processing on the sound. So for an audiophile to say, well, how can we be playing you know, music out of a hard drive, no matter how good the, uh, uh, the hard drive version is, uh, you can't tell coming through the radio because there's already so much happening to the sound.
4: When was the moment that you knew that you were kind of in love with
5: music? Oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, interestingly, my father, who loved classical music and Woody Guthrie folk songs, used to sit me down in front of a Victrola, the kind of record player where your dad would have to put a nickel on top of the tone arm to make sure the it didn't skip with the old record albums. And he would play me Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. My mom used to tell me this story too, uh, in the hopes that it would instill in me uh, an appreciation and love for classical music, uh, which it did. But, of course, then his son grew up to become a rock and roll disc jockey. So uh, music was uh, surrounding my ears at a very early age. And I grew up in a household where uh, the, the radio station was always turned to WQXR in New York City, which was the uh, classical station there. But at the same time, my father – and I don't know where this came from because his dad was kind of a captain of industry – And my dad loved Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, this like Dust Bowl ballads uh, folk music tradition and uh, committed a lot of those songs by heart. And uh, we grew up with a box set from Smithsonian Records, I think, in which it was Odetta and uh, Ewan McCall, all these old school folk singers doing old timey music. And we not only listen to that, but as we grew up, my brothers and I I have two brothers. One plays banjo badly, one plays the mandolin badly, I play the guitar badly. (laughs) We we all learn these songs, so at our family get-togethers, we get together at least once every year, we bring out the instruments, where only family can hear us, and uh, we sing these ridiculous old folk songs that uh, we learned when we were growing up with my dad. In fact, my dad's only wish for his funeral was that the brothers get together. And now with the second generation, my son who plays guitar and I have a niece who sings, that we would get together and uh, sing at his funeral with the instruments. So we sang the song that became a little more popular. It's classic um, in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the Cone Brothers movie, uh, I'll Fly Away. And we sang it and ragged three-part harmony and we all cried
4: when you're making the decision that you're going to follow your dad's wishes to to do this does it make the funeral itself easier or more difficult because now you know that you have to perform versus just being there and celebrating the life of your father i think
5: that there are so many emotions roiling around when a parent uh, dies, that the difficulty or ease of paying your respects in a manner that your parent wants to kind of quells any kind of anticipatory uneasiness that, I don't think it made it harder. I think it was something we look forward to.
4: Because I, I always wonder what to do in those situations where I think that sometimes when it comes to funerals that they need to be more celebratory i it's like the way that, that you guys did it feels right to me
5: yeah i mean everybody everybody spoke but uh as soon as you said celebratory i think of uh n- the traditional new orleans mm-hmm. funeral where you you walk in a somber uh, uh you stalk to the you walk to the uh the cemetery and then once The burial is over, although New Orleans is not really a burial.
4: Yeah, because it's above, Uh, it's it's below ground, below water. (laughs) Uh,
5: And and then it's and then it's a party. I absolutely believe that it should be a party. And if I ever pass away, although Mary Dixon thinks that I will live forever for obvious reasons, I would hope that it would be a celebration.
3: back. We've got some more from Lynn Bramer on these score airwaves, talking about his love for the Cubs in the wake of their World Series Championship and helping us through quarantine. It was Lynn in his own words on the score.
6: Yay!
0: Bernstein and Holmes, Midday's 10 to 2 on Sports Radio 670
3: The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Remembering our dear friend, Lynn Bramer, the day after he has passed away by trying to celebrate and appreciate as much as uh, we know he was good at always celebrating and appreciating whatever he had to celebrate and appreciate (laughs) at any time and that's what made him very very special and one thing that lynn celebrated that meant so much to him was the his beloved chicago cubs winning the world series he joined the boars and bernstein show on november 3rd 2016 a day after the win but terry wasn't in lawrence was This is what Lynn had to say to us. And right here on Sports Radio 670, the score is a very, very, very happy and I used to say long-suffering Cub fan. He is not a long-suffering Cub fan anymore. WXRT morning man Lynn Bramer, who has really been... I, 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 your role for Cub Nation has been something of almost, almost like a pastor. Well, you, you've served uh, almost in, in, a, in, a, in a pastoral sense for these people. What, what, what's well, I, going on in your mind I, now? You know,
5: I, it's it's only because I'm one of them. It's only because I, I know so many of the people in the bleachers. Uh, you know, by name, people I've I've sat with for decades. I know the names of the people that went to all 81 games in the bleachers. Judy and. And Al and Miriam and, uh, I was just looking at a picture of the bleacher gang in right center field, kind of a legendary group. Many people have been there since the late sixties and through the seventies, eighties and nineties, people that uh, keep score, uh, save the scorecards and, uh, looking at a, a group picture and two of them that, that didn't make it. Two people that mm. passed away in the last couple of years. Uh, you know what? I was with some very nerdy. Cub fans last night, I mean, people that could give you the batting averages of everybody in the sixty nine eighty four lineup, people that could tell you who hit the game-winning home run in the 69 opener, people who know that, that, uh, that Vaughn's name is Hippo and that uh, Hoffman's name is Solly. And I'll tell you, when the Cubs lost that lead, it was the post-traumatic stress disorder all over again, a more miserable group of people you have never seen. And what we had to keep reminding ourselves was, you know, this is not the past. This is not a team... Uh, from a bygone era. This is a team that was resilient all year long. And all of those games that we were so used to uh, seeing the Cubs destroy themselves somehow, uh, this year were the games where Miggy would hit a grand slam home run on an 0-2 pitch facing a lefty. Uh, Just an unbelievable year. (laughs) And the unbelievable quality ramped up in
3: Game 7 of the World Series. You remember the scene at the end of the movie The Candidate, Robert yes. Redford. Remember? Now, yes, he, that's and, a great line. And, and, it's, and, and Redford was a, it was a hard <laughs> movie reference, hard fought Senate campaign, and Peter Boyle plays his sort of hard bitten campaign manager, right? And he, they they win. Right. He has to compromise himself. He's this idealistic candidate, and he's
5: got to play the game eventually right? and figure out what to do. And at the very end,
3: he, he, he goes into the hotel room where they'd set up their little war room and they won. And Robert Redford, the, the candidate, looks at this guy and, and all he says is, what do we do now? <laughs> so that's my question to you. What do you do now? What, what do I do now same? emotionally yeah, part, mean,
5: as, as a Cub
3: fan? Yeah, an important defining characteristic of you is now gone. Well, I, I,
5: I think it goes back to discussions I heard on the score yesterday where people said, you know what? Uh, people did not have a problem with the Chicago Bulls winning year after year after year. I mean, I think excellence is its own reward. And as everybody has pointed out, the team is so young. Mm-hmm. These guys... These guys are so young, you know, I started doing the morning show before the infield was born, except for for rizzo. uh Think about that, so here you have a team that's going to keep you engaged i i think I think part of part of the emotional investment in next year and the years to come involves knowing that you have to go through this all over again and it took its toll i think it took its toll on cub fans they're down 3 to 1 they're being asked to believe in things that aren't supposed to happen you know people saying well it's you know happened 5 times before they've come back it was only 3 times in the world series uh, you have to you have to psych yourself up for going through another season like this filled with thrills and chills and, and ups and downs and the emotional roller coaster remember what i've always said that being a chicago cub fan it is a manic-depressive hayride. But for Cardinal fans, it's just a hayride.
4: I had a, a, someone <laughs> <laughs> tweet at me, and I, I loved it, so I, I retweeted it, that wait till next year has a real cocky feel to it. That is very nice. I hadn't thought about that, but, you know, it used to be
5: wait till next year, and now it's, hey, you've seen us, you've had a look at us, wait till next year.
3: You know what's going to happen really quickly? That a team that has built this national lovable brand is going to be intensely disliked <laughs> fast. Fast. You watch. We've seen it happen to the Warriors. Watch how quickly it boomerangs. Yeah, they're like, okay, enough, enough, Cubs. It's enough out of you.
5: Well, I think it happened to the Red Sox. You know, the Red Sox were the the lovable losers of the American League, and they've won enough that now, now they're the Yankees of the twenty first
3: century in kind of a way. Well, a big mazel tov to you. I, Thank you. I, I know what this means to you. Good to see to both you. you guys. And as I, I always leave you with this, get some sleep. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Please. I have other plans.
3: I know you do. That is Lynn Bramer. He is the morning man, longtime morning man, at our sister station, WXRT-FM, my FMP1 on my radio dial. He never took us up on that advice. Well, I mean, I, that was the wrong time to tell him. There's
4: never a right time to tell <sighs> Lynn. But that was the exact wrong time to tell him
3: to get sleep because the party was on. Well, hearing from him in such joyful times is always great. But sometimes our wisest and most thoughtful and aware friends uh, are are important to to talk to during difficult times, as I did on The Score on April 8th of 2020, about day-to-day life in quarantine.
7: <laughs> You're talking about uh, looking for comfort through the music you listen to. And, you know, we have a great advantage at XRT where we can lean on our library. And it's been amazing to me how much listeners have focused on lyrics they've heard hundreds of times. But there's sort of a new attention to what they're listening to and um, the way songs are affecting them. Is completely different these days on the radio, and, and you, you see it in social media, the way they react. And, and this is a time really not to wonder if this is the moment for you to explore free jazz. This is the time for you to go back to some of your old favorites. This is the time to wrap yourself in your favorite album that you listen to in your, your dormitory. But uh, I did sit down and uh, think of some songs that actually we've been playing over the last couple of weeks that have stood out, uh, that have brought people comfort, that appeal to people. You know, some of them are, some of the songs we play are a a little bit jokey, like uh, The Police Don't Stand So Close to Me or Georgia Satellites Keep Your Hands to Yourself, you know, musical public service announcements. But for me, it's songs like The Kinks Better Things. I once observed that Ray Davies has written a song for just, like Randy Newman has written a song for every occasion. And the song Better Things goes, here's wishing you the bluest sky and hoping something better comes tomorrow. Hoping all the verses rhyme and the very best of choruses too. Follow all the doubt and sadness. I know better things are on their way. Bob Marley, Three Little Birds, song XRT has played forever. Song where the the, the refrain is, because every little thing going to be all right makes you feel like it will. I don't know if you've heard this. You probably have. Uh, Israel Kamikovale, uh does a medley just singing with a ukulele, Over the Rainbow and What a Wonderful World. Just a little medley, very simply presented, with two of the most iconic compositions of the 20th century. Uh, now, I tried not to veer too much into songs of people you know, I've never heard uh, new songs, especially, but I had to mention The Lone Bellow. They have a new song. It's a beauty. It's called Count on Me. Uh, you can count on me if I can count on you. I did a Lin's Bin uh, essay about what it's like to have spring break in 2020 with everybody staying at home. And after the piece, I played The Young Bloods. This is kind of an oldie The Young Bloods get together, smile on your brother, everybody get together, try to love one another. Right now, Michael Bean, lead singer of, late lead singer of a band called The Call. has a song called Let the Day Begin with the lyric, here's to the doctors and their healing work. Here's to the loved ones and their care. Here's to the strangers on the streets tonight. Here's to the lonely everywhere. And I noticed you uh, opened the segment with a bumper from David Bowie, Heroes. People love heroes hearing that song right now because they relate it not to the typical heroes you might think of in mythology, but to the people at grocery stores who are stocking shelves as fast as people are removing as much toilet paper as they can get their hands on. Uh, There's a lot out there for you to listen to to make you feel better, and I heard you and Jay talking about uh, John Prine who I must have seen 20, 25 times. Sometimes you just need a laugh. And his whole catalog is worth delving into at any time. But he has a song called Dear Abby, where he asks advice. And it's a song for when you need advice and a good laugh. And maybe finally, I should mention uh, the Beatles Golden Slumbers medley from Abbey Road. It's just one of those perfect songs for all times for whatever's going on.
3: That was Lynn Bramer helping us uh, when we needed it.
6: Yeah.
4: And I completely relate to what he was saying because I can't hear Three Little Birds now without crying because it it was kind of my song that it, like, brought me back to, like – all right, things are going to be okay. Like you can you can work through all of this stuff. But something that you said earlier about Lynn, his ability to his recall is unreal. Like you heard it you heard it in that 3 minutes that he's talking. Like his recall was incredible but he's making you a better student of music because his passion for it, it comes across and it's, it's hard when you lose something, you lose someone like that, that has that type of ability to tie people to their emotions. He's, he's giving you the reasons why these things hit you in a certain way. He's giving voice to it and making you understand it. And I don't know if there's a better compliment than one
3: could give a DJ than that. When we return on Bernstein and Holmes, we've got to share some thoughts on NFL media. People broadcasting the games, reacting, and uh, doing stuff on Twitter. Hair dye. Man, I've got a... A a list of of various grievances and and, and compliments to throw out there for the people who have been on our televisions and in our timelines. That's next on The Score.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours